I don't know what you think of when you think of fearless, but I think of this little girl. This is Eden Hope Fabares. She's my granddaughter. She's actually my only granddaughter. And, uh, you know, the rose among the thorns, at least for the moment. And uh, she is one fearless little girl. Pretty much from the time she began to walk, this is all we saw of her. See you later, Eden. Yes. And uh, once she could run, that was it. She was running wherever she went. And uh, she doesn't seem to care whether you're following her or not. She doesn't hesitate. She doesn't look back. This is all we see of her, right? And frankly, that makes grandma a little scared, right? You, you don't want to be the one that loses Eden, not on your watch. You grandmas, you understand that. But now Eden doesn't care. Frankly, I would have described Eden at this point in her development as recklessly fearless, right? There, there is no thought of the consequences of her actions. She throws caution to the wind and she's just gone. See what I mean? Yeah, who's going to go get her, right? But as Eden has grown and matured, she's come to understand that uh, one of us, someone that she knows and trusts, is going to be following after her. Someone who's bigger and stronger than her is probably going to be keeping an eye out for her. And I know that she knows that because she started to look back and just take a little peek to see if we're behind her. Now, sometimes she full-on stops, grins at us, and then bolts, but occasionally it's a little peak. And so now I would describe her as someone who is, has a faith-filled fearlessness. See, because she knows that one of us is always going to be watching out for her and following behind her. And for those of us here who are real followers of Christ, the same can be said about us. Because we have someone that we know and trust. We have someone who is bigger and stronger than us. No matter what scary thing we might be facing, who is always going to be watching out for us, making sure that we're okay. And that is the theme of our verse today. Our theme verse is Psalm 27.1, and it says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This means if the Lord, that is the Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who sustains everything we see, the King of kings and the Lord of the lords, if he is my light, that means if, he, if his favor and his blessing rests on me, and then he says, if my salvation, if he's my salvation, that means he's my protection. He's the one who keeps me safe. If that's true, then I won't be afraid. I won't freak out no matter what happens to me. And then there's the second sentence here that says it even stronger. It says, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. That means my safe place, my refuge. If you can imagine a fortress, think of a fort and you being inside of it with all the enemies surrounding it, you're safe in there. If he is your stronghold, you won't be afraid. And this time the word is, I won't be terrified. I won't be trembling with fear if he is my stronghold. This is a statement of absolute faith, and it is available to all of God's people, no matter what scary things wait for you outside this door, because he is with you, you can be fearless. And this was not just an academic thing to the man who wrote these words. It was a man named King David, and King David uh, was actually a very young man when he was anointed as king, and he had a big enemy, his predecessor, King Saul. And King Saul was very much threatened by King David, and he was after him all the time. Multiple times he was chasing him down and trying to kill him. And yet David was fearless. 
He didn't know what was going to happen next. He didn't know when Saul was going to attack. But he was fearless because he knew God was with him and that God would keep him safe. No matter what kind of pain, what kind of struggle, what kind of discomfort, because David had some of that, but he still knew that God was going to keep him safe. In the New Testament, there's like an expansion of this thought of him keeping us safe. And in 2 Timothy, it says this, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. In other words, yeah, we're going to make it through this life. He's going to keep us safe. Doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect, but for sure we're going to be safe forever. Because if we're his children, we're going to go to a safe place where nothing can ever harm us ever again. And this can be your reality if you're one of God's kids. If you're one of those people who has turned from your sin and trusted in Christ to forgive you and to pay for your debt, your sin on the cross, this can be yours. You can be a person who is fearless, even right this second in the midst of whatever you're facing, because God is your safe spot. And I know this is a big statement because there's a ton of scary stuff out there, isn't there? Some of you are facing it right now. It might be financial, it might be relational, it might be physical. But you can still be fearless because God is your safe spot and because he's following after you and looking, you're looking over your shoulder like Eden and he is the one who is there. If you're a follower of God, if you've handed the keys over of your life over to him, in exchange for that, you got forgiveness, but you also got protection and you got comfort and you got God. So you can live through even your worst nightmare fearlessly. Now our woman of the hour she had this faith-filled fearlessness to the utmost because she knew God. But frankly, she didn't start out that way. She was a lot more like 12-month-old Eden, bipping through life, doing whatever she wanted. She didn't have a care in the world until God changed everything for her. She was born Sabina Oster on July 10th, 1913, to an Orthodox Jewish family in Chinovitz, Romania. And after she graduated with a degree in chemistry, she decided to go to Paris to study languages. And while she was on summer vacation, she went back to Romania, and she met Richard Wormbrand at the home of a family friend. They had a lot in common, and they hit it off right away. They had both been raised in a very poor home and in a Jewish home, but they had both become atheists. They decided God did not exist, and they had left the faith of their fathers. And frankly, they lived a life of pleasure, they lived a life of alcohol, of sex, of partying, of clubbing every night. And in fact, Richard was a very successful stockbroker. He made lots of money. So they would go out every single night and they would love spending all the money that Richard was making in the clubs. Well, they were married in a few months' time and everything was fantastic until Richard began to cough and cough. And pretty soon, he found himself in a hospital in a sleepy little town in Romania, in a hospital being treated for tuberculosis, which in those days was pretty much a death sentence. But he was getting good treatment at this hospital, and Sabina lived with his mother, but came back and forth to visit him every other weekend by train. Now, even though Sabina's mother-in-law was super sweet and gracious, Sabina spent most nights crying herself to sleep. She was only 23 years old, and she felt like this, this time of fun and laughter and being a newlywed and all of that was over because Richard was so sick. 
Now, eventually he did get better, but it took a very, very long time. Well, while he was in the hospital, he read a book that another patient had given him. And it was a book all about a ministry that sought to convert Jews to Christianity. And one night, Richard laid in bed, and he prayed his very first, very hesitant prayer to God. And he said this. He said, God, I'm absolutely sure you don't exist. But if, by some chance you do, it isn't my job to believe in you. It's your job to reveal yourself to me. Now, in God's providence, Richard was not the only one who was praying that night. There was an old German carpenter who actually spent his entire night in prayer. Now, he was praying for the privilege of being able to convert one of God's people to Jesus Christ before he died. But, you see, he lived in a really remote village, and he didn't know one single Jew who lived in his town. But he and his wife, they stayed up for hours, in fact, many nights, weeks, and months, praying for the heart of a single Jewish person that they would be brought to Jesus Christ. But again, he didn't know any of them until he did. Because one day, Richard and Sabina were walking through this town, and they happened upon this old German carpenter. And he was so excited to meet Richard that he gave him his Bible that he had in his hand, his tattered old well-used Bible. And he basically hugged Richard and he said, I just hope that you are the answer to all of my prayers. And Richard's journey to Christ began in earnest that day. Now, Richard and Sabrina, Sabina talked about Jesus every time they were together, every time she came to visit. Now, someone who came from an Orthodox Jewish family, this was the worst thing that her husband could be doing. She had been taught her entire life from childhood on up that when she walked down the street, when she walked by a church, she should turn her head away. She'd also been told never to name the name of Jesus. And she had actually a humiliating experience in her childhood where these other little girls on the playground had come to her, pulled her hair, and called her a dirty little Jewess. And they were church girls. And then, of course, this was the 1930s. And in Europe... In the 1930s, it was the height of anti-Semitism by so-called Christians, mind you. So she could not understand how her brilliant, honorable, and very fun young husband could be interested in Jesus. She wanted to return to their clubbing days as soon as he got better, but all he wanted to do was talk about the New Testament. She couldn't stand to hear him say the name of Jesus. In fact, she told him, I don't need him, and you don't either. This is not natural. We're Jewish. It's another way of life. But she even offered to go to synagogue with him, and they did. And he took her to church with him. And he actually walked her around these churches that they visited and showed her that the stained glass, most of the figures in the stained glass were of Jewish people. He even explained to her that Jesus was Jewish, and that because of Jesus, their Bible was read by people all over the world. He patiently talked through every one of her objections. Eventually, she did read the New Testament, and she began to admire Jesus as a person, but she continued to battle emotionally because this just isn't right. She knew it. Then one day, Richard told her the worst news of all. 
Richard had turned from his sin, he'd surrendered his life to follow Christ, and he was going to get baptized. She lost it. She said, I would rather die than see you become a Christian. She was so distraught, actually, that she refused to go with him. She locked herself in a room, and she planned to kill herself that night so that Richard would come home from his baptism and find her dead body. She locked herself in a room, and she cried. And in that crying, she called out to Jesus. She said this, I cannot come to you. I do not want Richard to be yours. I can't bear any more of this. And she hysterically cried for a long time until slowly the tears dried up. And she decided she would walk out to the train station to meet Richard that night. They talked all night long until she too surrendered her life to follow Jesus Christ. The year was 1937. If you know your world history, you know that in Europe they were gearing up for something big, right? World War II was right around the corner. Now, Romania and Germany were strong allies. And so it didn't take too long till the Nazis were at their door. And in fact, Sabina's family, her parents and her two sisters and her brother were all taken by the Nazis and they never heard from them again. But Sabina was comforted knowing that all three, all of the family had surrendered their life to Christ before they disappeared. Richard and Sabina, they cared for Jewish orphans that were left behind when their parents were taken to concentration camps. They taught the Bible in bomb shelters, and uh, they were court-martialed by the Nazis three separate times for these illegal Christian activities. But because they had very powerful friends, they were released each and every time. And then in August of 1944, oh joy, the Russians rolled into town, and everybody thought, this is it, we're saved. And the German occupation was over. And Richard and Sabina, Richard was now a pastor, and their young five-year-old son, Mihai, went out among the Russian troops, and they passed out Bibles and gospel tracts, and they shared the gospel with all these Russian soldiers, and they hoped that things would be different now. But they were committed, no matter what, to the persecuted people. And at this point in time, the persecuted people in Romania were the Nazi soldiers who had been stranded after the war. They were everywhere. They were hiding everywhere. And so Richard and Semina brought them into their home. At one point, they had three German officers out in their outhouse behind their home. And Sabina was feeding them and doing their laundry for them. And uh, one of the officers said this to her. You know it's death to shelter a German soldier, and yet you do it and you're Jews. I must tell you that when the German army recaptures Bucharest, which it surely will, I will never do this for you. But Sabina said, I am your host. My family was killed by the Nazis. But as long as you're under my roof, I owe you not only protection, but the respect due a guest. You will suffer. The Bible says, whoever shed man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. I will protect you as much as I can from the police, but I cannot protect you from the wrath of God. Now, the Wormbrands, they uh, regularly hid German soldiers in one part of their house while they entertained Russians in the other part of their house. <laughs> Richard was committed to sharing Christ and being Christ to anyone and everyone. It didn't matter who you were. He was going to share Jesus with you. 
Um, because of the communism in Russia, they found that these soldiers coming in, they didn't know anything about the Bible. They had never been to church, and they knew nothing about Jesus. So the Wormbrands and their church actually printed thousands of gospel tracts in Russian in order to share the gospel with them. Within a year, the Russian troops that they had welcomed in with all this hope and happiness had slowly but surely taken over every power position in the government in Romania. And Stalin himself had appointed the head of Congress. So it was a very different Romania that held a huge rally that was called the Congress of Cults. This was a rally where they invited 4,000 religious leaders from across Romania. And Richard knew that the church was being lulled to sleep. They were soon going to be swallowing the pill of communism, not realizing that even, even days from now, even weeks from now, that they would turn on them and outlaw Christianity. He had seen it happen in Russia when Stalin had, you know, very much supported all the persecuted peoples until he got into power, and then he systematically snuffed all of them out. And uh, Richard was upset at this Congress of Cults. The very first thing that they did that night was the Romanian government official got up and assured everyone there that the new Romanian government was in favor of faith. And then every religious leader was supposed to be called up to the microphone to thank the Romanian leaders for their support. Now, Sabina knew that Richard was fuming next to her. And she said to him, will you not wash this shame off the face of Jesus? If I speak, he said, you will lose a husband. I don't need a coward for a husband, this fearless woman said. And so Richard stood at the microphone and he told everyone not to praise earthly human leaders who will come and go, but to glorify God the creator and Christ the savior who died for us on the cross. His words were being broadcast across the room and actually across the country. And Sabina beamed with happiness. Then a man jumped up to his feet and he said, your right to speak has been withdrawn. And Richard continued on as the audience applauded. Cut his microphone, someone yelled. But the audience just kept shouting, the pastor, the pastor, the pastor. That uproar lasted long after Richard's microphone was cut. Soon hecklers were sent to disrupt every service that Richard led. So they began taking their meetings to the streets. And they would almost do what we would call a flash mob where they would start out on the street and they would begin singing. And a crowd would gather around. And then once the crowd had gathered around, then they would begin preaching the Bible. Unfortunately, though, again, the communists did not like this. So then they would shoot into the crowds until people fled for their lives. Arrests began in 1947, and then the elections were rigged. And then the king of Romania... Michael I was exiled, and eventually the communists gained control of all of Romania. Then seemingly overnight, the Catholics, every Catholic nun, bishop, priest, monk, disappeared. These are actual mugshots. People moved up to the mountains for safety and out of the streets, and then the borders were closed. Homes began to be raided by the secret police. And they started bringing people in to make a statement, they said. 
Reporters from the West said that the Romanians were well cared for because they saw vans, and the vans had these big signs on them that were like bread and milk and fish. And they assumed that these people were being well taken care of, not knowing that inside those vans there were really Romanian captives. No, no food, not food. There was a man that walked into the Worm Brands about that time, and he had a big, fat file of papers. He threw it down on the table, and he said, I want to let you know that someone is informing on your family. And he told Richard if he gave him a bunch of money, that he would destroy the evidence against his family. And they agreed. And then he went to tell them who it was, and Sabina was like, no, 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 don't tell us, don't tell us, I don't want to know who it is. She did not want to resent this person. And the man said, suit yourself, and he walked out. More and more, their friends and colleagues were being coerced into being informants, and the holdouts were being imprisoned. So people began to leave Romania in droves. If you had money and you had desire, you could get out. Richard and Sabina began to think about leaving at this time. Richard said, when we were under Nazi rule, they imprisoned us for only two or three weeks, but under the Nazis, it's going to be years. And if they take you too, what's going to happen to Mihai? And then a man that Richard had won to Christ many years earlier came to their house one night randomly and began talking about that night and his conversion and how Richard had used the story of Lot and his wife and said, escape for your life, don't look back, escape for your life. And after he left that night, Richard said to Sabina, do you think he came to speak for God to us? Why would he come after so many years? And why would he tell us that story and keep repeating, escape for your life? Is it a warning? Escape for what life, Sabina said. And she opened her Bible to Jesus' words in Luke 9. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If you leave now, she said, will you ever be able to preach this text again? The church met secretly night after night, and they shared sweet times of fellowship and teaching and prayer time. And during an all-night prayer meeting, one woman prayed this, and you, the one who thinks of leaving, remember the good shepherd did not desert his flock. He stayed to the last. Now, no one knew that the Wormbrands were thinking of leaving, but of course, as they walked home that night, Richard and Sabina discussed this, and they decided firmly and steadfastly that they would not leave Romania, that they would stay, and they felt 100% completely at peace about it. And then on an icy cold morning on February 29th, 1948, it was a Sunday morning, Richard was walking the 10 minutes from his home to the church. It was a Sunday morning. He was going to be preaching that day. And he disappeared. And Sabina searched and searched for him and even asked the Swedish ambassador, her friend, to go to Groza, the prime minister, and find out what might have happened to her husband. Groza said, we found Richard with a suitcase full of relief money, and we've sent him to Denmark. The Swedish ambassador cautiously, carefully suggested that, well, maybe he is in police custody. And Groza said, if you can prove it, we'll release him. Sabina made dinner for Richard every night and waited for him to come home. And he never did. No human could intervene for Richard then. Their only human, earthly hope was money. They were told that they could buy Richard's way out for a price. Now, it was an exorbitant price. It was a huge task, 
but they raised it with much difficulty, and they were guaranteed that Richard would be free. But he wasn't. Pastors began disappearing by the hundreds, and their wives continued in the work of the church without them in Romania, most of them without any formal training. These are actual pastors' wives from Romania during this time period. They worked in the underground church, even though they didn't have any training. But see, Sabina, she knew her Bible well. And so they came to depend on her. And she trained them, and she worked in the underground church. And then all day long, she would go from government office to government office looking for news of Richard. Now, the two of them had discussed what might happen had they, if they got arrested or if one of them died. And they had discussed the fact that when they got to the other side and the New Jerusalem, that they would meet together at one of the 12 gates, the Benjamin Gate to be specific. Should they be parted in this life, that's why they were going to meet up together in the next life. Then one day, a man came to their home, and he smelled very strongly of alcohol. He informed them that he was the man who brought Richard his meals in solitary confinement. And he said that Richard told him that they would give him money for news of his welfare. Now, the man said, this is very risky for me. I could get 12 years in prison, but I like Richard and I like money, so I'm willing to take the risk for you. They didn't want to give him any money until they had some proof. So they took a candy bar out of whatever the pantry was there, and they sent it with the man, and they said, have Richard sign this. And they sent it out with the guy. Well, two days later, he returned. He took the hat off his head, and he dug down into the lining of the hat, and he took out the candy bar wrapper. And it read this, my dearest wife, thank you for your sweetness. I am well, Richard. And it was unmistakably in his handwriting. And of course, Sabina was full of joy and also sorrow at imagining what this must be like for him. But she paid the guy, and they started sending notes back and forth in the prison with this gentleman. And they gave that candy bar to the Swedish ambassador, the rapper, so that he would take it to Groza, right? This is now proof that he's being held. That man was, um, well, basically, he was fired. <laughs> he was relieved of his duties immediately, and he was sent back to Sweden, just like that. But because Sabina was a political prisoner, uh, or married to a political prisoner, I should say, she couldn't get a ration card. Without a ration card, you couldn't work, uh, you couldn't support yourself, you got no food, and so she had to do whatever odd job she could find to support herself and her son. And Mihai would be gone for weeks at a time. They would send him out to friends' houses for weeks at a time so that Sabina could work and so he would be safe. And during one of those times in August of 1950, this was now two years after Richard disappeared, while 10-year-old Mihai was out in the country visiting friends, Sabina came home from work. And she had been a cleaning lady that day, and she was utterly exhausted. And she laid down in bed and fell asleep right away, only to be wakened in the middle of the night by banging on the door. The secret police was at her door. And they began to ransack her apartment and throw things around. And they said, we know that you're hiding arms in here, Sabina Wormbrand. Huh. She said, the only weapon that I have in this house is this. And she went down and she scooped up the Bible that they had thrown to the floor. She said, this is the only weapon I've got. Then they started to drag her out the door. She grabbed a robe and she grabbed some socks and she was gone. She was put into a car. She had blacked out goggles put over her eyes and she was driven away from her home that night. Soon she found herself in a room that was overflowing with women. 
A lot of them she recognized, maybe a politician's wife, maybe it was an actress, maybe a servant at the palace. She recognized all these women. By the end of the day, there were hundreds of women in this room. Some of them were hysterical. Others were violently ill. And others were banging on the door saying, we've done nothing wrong, we've done nothing wrong, forgetting that it was 1950 and they lived in a communist state. A few days later, Sabina's name was called and she had those goggles, those blacked out goggles put back on and she was driven to the police headquarters. Here she was put in solitary confinement for many days until eventually they blindfolded her and they pulled her out and they brought her to an interrogation room. And at first they were very kind to her. They said, now Mrs. Wormbrand, you know your offenses against the state. We just want you to write a detailed statement of what they are. What shall I write, she said, I don't know why I'm here. And this went on back and forth, back and forth until they just threw a pen and paper at her and made her write something. So she wrote sentences, a paragraph about how she didn't know why she was here. They grabbed her again, they blindfolded her, they brought her back to her cell and as they closed the door and slammed it, they said, now you'll sit and think until you write what the officer told you or you'll get the treatment. That's when the mental torture began. First, they bullied her and they humiliated her. Then they began to play recordings around the clock incessantly of screams, of gunshots and firing squads. But the worst of all was children crying out for their mothers, hour after hour. They brought her in for questioning again and again. They were looking for information on Richard, on their meetings, on their colleagues. And they said to her, Mrs. Wormbrand, you're a very intelligent woman. We don't understand your attitude. You and your husband are Jews. We communists, we save you from the Nazis. You should be grateful. Your husband is accused of counter-revolutionary activities by people in your church. Maybe they're trying to save themselves, but we can't tell. If you tell us who the real traitors are, we will free your husband tomorrow. And all Sabina would say is, I know nothing. And then they would return her to her cell, battered and bruised. At night, she would lay there and she would wonder what Richard was enduring and what he had experienced that day. And she would lay there on the floor and she would recite Bible verses to herself. And she knew that Richard was doing the same thing. And she'd be praising God that she had been able to resist one more day of the questioning. Then eventually, she was told to gather her things. Uh, she said she was be they said she was being sentenced. Of course, she had no trial, no charges, but she was being sentenced. And she was being sent to a labor camp. A labor camp with all the others who didn't fit the communist profile. The labor camp she went to was huge. There were 200,000 men, women, and children there from age 12 to over 70 at the camp where Sabina was held. The state congratulated themselves because they said they had taken care of all their unemployment problem. They said everyone had a job. They didn't explain that it was slave labor and people had been captured and forcibly sent to these labor camps and not gainfully employed. Sabina was sent to the infamous Danube River Canal and uh, it was a project that was supposed to connect the Black Sea with the Danube River. The Danube River goes throughout Europe and hits a lot of big cities. And at one point, it, doesn't get, it gets close to the Black Sea, but not close enough. So they were going to dig basically a canal and a trench that would connect it to the Black Sea. It was 
backbreaking work. They were, Sabina's job was to take rocks and move them by hand from one place to another, and then to put dirt in wheelbarrows and to push it up the hills. It was backbreaking work, and they went to their huts every night with cracked and bleeding hands. And 80 women would be put in a hut in a space that was meant for 20. But every single night, this faithful pastor's wife would do the same thing night after night, and that is that she would tell the, a Bible story every night. She would tell it to the gypsies and the thieves. She would tell it to the nuns and the prostitutes. She would tell it to the political prisoners and the noble people. She might tell them stories of Moses and the burning bush. Or maybe she would speak of Elijah and how God had supplied food through the birds that brought him his meat and his bread. But most of all, she would tell them the story of how Jesus had died on the cross for them. And as the camp filled up with more and more Christians, they were able to come up with an entire verbal New Testament just by all the passages that each one of them had memorized. And they would say that, and then the next person would add on, and the next person would add on. Sabine asked everybody she knew if they knew anything of Richard with no success. Until one day, finally, she found one woman who said, oh, wait, I heard a guy in solitary confinement, and all he did was preach about Jesus every day. And it would go on and on and on. He'd always be preaching about Jesus. But I heard the man, um, I could tell that he was sick. And he got slower and slower until one day, it just stopped. And I was told that he had died. Sabine, of course, she knew it was Richard, and she cried, and she prayed, and she asked God to give this faithful servant of his more years of life. Eventually, she was allowed a visitor, and she got to see Mihai for the first time in two years. He was now 12 years old. She had 15 minutes with him in a crowded room full of people with guards that listened to everything they said. And the two of them were basically so overwhelmed that they couldn't even speak to each other. So they just sat there and looked at each other. But as she was being dragged from the room, she called out, Mihai, believe in Jesus with all your heart. She said it was the best counsel she could give and the only hope for a motherless child. Fearless Sabina, she spoke up for Jesus everywhere she went, particularly with the communists. She found that the communists that were in prison with her were the most hopeless of all. I mean, think of it. They had given their whole lives to the Communist Party, and still they found themselves in prison. They were so hopeless. And yet they were also the most vicious, particularly to the Christians. They were the ones who would say to the Christians things like this. We communists, we make sure that Christ gets thousands of customers every year who die with his name on their lips. We're filling up his heaven. He ought to be grateful to us. And the communist guards were the most vicious to Sabina. I mean, the faithful pastor's wife. Like the day they tripped her. They tripped her as she was walking along so that she would fall face first in the mud. And then they said, oh, you're dirty. And they laughed at her. And then they picked her up and they threw her into the freezing cold Danube River. Where she hit the rocky shore. She broke two ribs that day and never received anything but laughter. No help. No medical treatment. Those who collapsed at the camps were beaten to death. And the, it said that the graveyard was twice as big as the camp itself. 
Eventually, the Russians came to realize and understand that this Danube River project that they were doing was hopelessly flawed in their engineering. And so they gave up on the project, and they sent everybody away to another labor camp and stopped work. And then in the spring of 1953, Sabina was brought back to where she began, the prison she started at, and she was asked a bunch of questions about socialism and it being a, a good way of life, a productive way of life. The man said to her, Mrs. Wormbrand, in this place you must know that I am more powerful than God. Have you accepted this? Have you really seen the sham of religion and realized in a communist society God is superfluous and that you have no need for him anymore? Now, Sabina knew she should agree. She just couldn't do it. So she said, I see that you are powerful. I know that you keep records on me that could decide my fate. But I want you to know that God keeps records too and that you and I would have no life without him. So whether he keeps me here or he sets me free, I will accept that as what's best for me. The officer, of course, got pretty angry and threw her out. And three days later, she assumed she was being sent to another camp for more re-education in socialism. But when all of a sudden they walked her out the gate and they gave her a certificate of liberation, she realized they were setting her free. She jumped on a tram and she made her way through Bucharest and in a few minutes, 14-year-old Mihai was in her arms and they rejoiced and praised God for their homecoming. Sabina was stunned when she realized the abject poverty outside their door. People were selling everything they had for a very small bit of food. And they were standing in line at government offices, well, for everything, food, permission. And that's what Sabina was doing. She uh, was standing in line for hours so that she and Mihai could have permission to occupy a small attic space. There was two rooms. There was no water, no bathroom, no heating, no cooling, and a single window that looked out at a brick wall. They could only fit two beds in there. That's all they had. But it was a good thing because there was no room for anything else. All of their property had been confiscated by the government. The worst thing that they had to endure in this time, though, was the multitude of informants that were all around them. The underground church, though, was compelled to worship God and to be together, so they kept meeting together no matter what. They just had to get creative about it. They changed locations. They changed times. They changed passwords so that they could still meet together and do it safely. They also got creative in sending people to the Communist Party meetings. Real Christians would pretend to be communists so that they could go in and hear about who was on their hit list, so to speak, who was being threatened so that they could help them before they came and arrested them. They also convinced a young, bold, fearless, Christian woman to be the housekeeper of the head of the secret police in his home. She became his trusted servant, and she had free reign of his house every time he and his family went out of town. And so this bold young woman suggested that maybe the underground church should come meet in his house. And so that's what they did every time he was gone, and no one ever found out. Now, the communist propaganda in the schools was intense, and of course, the Christians feared for their children. They were continually taught that God did not exist, and communism was the right way to live. Um, and Sabina felt, of course, like she was in a never-ending battle for Mihai's soul. 
but because of the grace of God, because of her prayers and Richard's prayers, because of the faithful Christian woman who took care of him and raised him for the four years almost that Sabina was in prison, when she met him at the door, he said this to her, Mother, I'm on your side, and I love the Lord. Now, Sabina raised silkworms under her bed for their silk to sell it, and she sewed clothes. This is how she made money. But she was watched every day. She was very restricted and pretty much under house arrest. But she and Mihai had, only one, of, had one of the only Bibles at their church, so people would regularly come by her house to hear Sabina or Mihai read the Bible. Just imagine that. You don't have a Bible of your own. You got to travel, what, a half a mile or something down the street to someone else's to have them read to you the scripture. But people came over and over to have them read the Bible. Now, Mihai, he was able uh, to go to Christian meetings. And the reason why is he was not watched like Sabina was and because they disguised them as parties. They would turn the music up, they'd have these enthusiastic hellos at the door, and they'd have music and dancing, and then they would turn it off to preach the word, and then they'd turn it back on, and they'd have a party, and then they'd enthusiastically say goodbye at the door. And this is how the church had their meetings, by disguising them as other things. Every pastor in Romania was the member of the official church, and they would go and they would do Sunday services there like everybody else did, but of course they couldn't say what they wanted to. So they all also did underground church meetings. They said that the, the preaching was incredibly powerful because not only did the pastor not know if this was going to be his sermon, but the people didn't know if this would be their last sermon, right? And their only hope they could find was in the word of God. One day, a government official came and, uh, to Sabina and told her if she would just divorce Richard, then Mihai could go to whatever, I mean, best high school and best college that they had in Romania. All she had to do was divorce him. She said, I did not marry my husband only for the happy times. We are united forever, and whatever comes, I will not divorce him. The communists continued to pressure these wives with political prisoners and husband, husbands to divorce them for a few reasons. One is that these men would give up hope if there was no one outside waiting for them. And they would also sign whatever the communists wanted them to sign. And they would never be released. And then, of course, there was the, the added part that if these women divorced and remarried other men, then their relationships would be destroyed forever. These women were in dire situations. Remember I said she couldn't get a ration card. None of them could. So they got no work and no food if they didn't divorce their husbands. But Sabina never faltered, even though she didn't know for sure if Richard was dead or alive. Eventually, things relaxed politically, and many prisoners were released. Uh, Richard had only served eight and a half years of his 20-year sentence uh, when Sabina was at work one day, and she came home, and he was just there. He was there. <gasps> I was like, whoa. And of course, they had a great celebration that night. Now, Richard had been in prison, like I said, eight and a half years, and he had 18 scars across his body from the torture that he had endured. And his lungs were just destroyed because of tuberculosis and no treatment in prison. But he was safe, and he was there, and he had remained faithful. He had remained faithful even in solitary confinement for an unprecedented three years. He had no human contact, and yet he didn't talk. 
And when they brought in wild dogs that snarled at him and threatened to attack him, he didn't give up anyone's identity. And when they stabbed him and they left him bleeding in his cell, he revealed no secrets. When he was so ill that he was sent to the death room where no one made it out alive, he refused to tell people what he knew, even to get medication. And when he was hung up by his knees and they beat his spine and his feet mercilessly to the point where he could never walk normal again, he still did not inform. They drugged him for months on end, hoping to loosen his tongue, and still he didn't name names. And then they put prisoners beside him and they ordered them to beat him day and night, and he didn't sell out. And they incessantly played recordings that said, Christianity is stupid. Why not give up? No one loves you. You've been forgotten. God is no more. And he did not falter. And when they put him in a carcer, a carcer is a box that's not much bigger than a person, with hundreds of sharp nails pounded in, top to bottom on every side, and he was left in there for hours, no wait, days, motionless. He still didn't give in. When he was told that his wife and son didn't want to see him, were in prison, and were even killed, he did not surrender. Richard never broke because God was his light, his salvation, his stronghold, and he made him fearless even in that dark place. And oh, the stories that Richard could tell of the way that God had strengthened him and made him fearless in there. And they started before he was even snatched from the street. You see, in Richard's study of the Bible, he had found that there were 366 places in the Bible that God's people were told not to fear. So he decided that he would memorize every single one of them for a different day of the year, 366. And so that meant the very first thing he did and the only question that he asked them when they grabbed him and kidnapped him was, what day is today? His captor said, it's February 29th. And he was like, oh, okay. And he recalled Psalm 56.3. That was the day's verse. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. And he was comforted. God was also there when he met a former Communist Party man who became a Christian because he heard Richard tapping out the gospel in Morse code while the two of them were in solitary confinement through the walls. God was there when no man that was sent to that death room, remember I described it for you earlier, the place they sent really sick people to die. Richard was sent there and he was supposed to last two weeks. Well, not one man left that room in the two and a half years that Richard was a resident there without going from being an atheist to being the follower of Jesus Christ before he died in two and a half years. God was there also when the communist officer that repeatedly and ruthlessly and brutally interrogated Richard for months on end surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. God was there when a Christian friend a real Christian, a doctor, took the amazingly difficult undercover assignment of becoming a communist. Even his family didn't know the truth, so that he could move in and among the communists and help the Christians. And he came across Richard in prison and was able to get word out to Sabina about how he was doing. And God was there <laughs> when a tattered copy of the Gospel of John was tucked inside someone's cast on their leg and smuggled in to the prison, and it became a treasured possession and brought many, many people to Christ. And God was there when the Christian prisoners were able to encourage one another. It was against the rules to pray. It was against the rules to worship. 
When these Christians got together, and even when they were in their cells alone, that's what they did until the guards came in and grabbed them out and beat them and put them back. And guess what? The next night, they would do exactly the same thing. And while they were being mistreated and tortured, they would love their torturers, and they would share Jesus Christ with them. And these Christians would get together and encourage one another. And God was there in this and hundreds of other ways in that very dark and scary place. But now Richard was free, and he got his license to preach as soon as it was available, and he began to preach at the official state church. And of course, the secret police were there documenting his every sentence. He also went to the university, and he started doing a series of lectures where he talked through each argument of the Marxist viewpoints, and he basically destroyed them, right? And uh, guess how long they let him keep his license to preach? Uh, Six weeks. And that's all he got. But he continued to preach in the underground church. About three years later, one of his congregants was found copying and distributing his sermons. And of course, that read them right to Richard's door. So they came to his house in the middle of the night and snatched him up. And when they tried to arrest him, he said, wait, let me, uh, I'd, I'd like to hug my wife. He tried to. And they pushed him back. And he said this. He said, I will leave this house without struggle if you will allow me to embrace my wife. So they did. And they knelt on the floor and they sang this hymn. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And when they finished, they took Richard into custody again. This is his mugshot. Sabina wept and she fearlessly prayed, Lord, I give my husband into your hands. I can do nothing, but you can pass through locked doors. You can put angels around him. You can bring him back. This time there was a trial, if you could call it that. It lasted about two minutes. They asked Richard if he had anything to say, and he said, I love God. (laughs) And his pardon was canceled. His 20-year sentence was reinstated. Five more were tacked on, and uh, they confiscated everything that the Wormbrands had again. Officials came to Sabina multiple times and asked her to pay these huge fines for Richard's crimes, and they rifled through her stuff, and they arrested anyone who was with her. They continually also tried to get her to divorce Richard, She refused, and so then they began to despicably send people to her home to tell her that Richard was dead. They had attended his funeral in prison, and he was dead. Years passed, and uh, in 1964, many prisoners were freed again. And yes, Richard was among them many years later. He had spent now another six years in prison. Hundreds of Christians greeted him at the train station when he got back, including the woman who had prayed Remember the good shepherd did not desert his flock. He saw her and he hugged her and he told her, I never regretted not leaving Romania. Everything that has happened to me is the will of God for my life. This time Richard was much thinner. He was a very tall man and he was only 90 pounds. But of course, the first thing he did was get his license to preach. Only this time they had lots of restrictions on him. He was only allowed to preach to 36 people at a time. Four tables? I don't know. Um, Yes, it was very restrictive, um, but many people came from all over to see Richard, and they became Christians because hundreds of them got saved by talking to him. Everyone knew this was something that could not continue, though. They had to do something. And so the church leaders decided, because without his anonymity, everyone with him was at risk everywhere he went. So the church leaders said, it's time for you guys to leave Romania. Um, They knew that Richard, if he left Romania, would go out and share the truth about what was happening in communist Romania and the Christians being persecuted there. And because of that, he and others would survive. So friends inside and outside Romania, they began gathering up the money that it would cost to ransom Richard's life. 
Most people paid, this was 1965, most people paid $2,500. The government insisted on $10,000 from him. And uh, they actually said, yes, we'll let you go if you come up with that money, but you cannot preach anything disparaging against the communists or the Romanian government. But you can preach Christ all you want. If we find that you've been preaching badly about communism or the Romanian government, we will recapture you and we will execute you this time. But in December of 1965, Richard and his family got on a plane and flew to Rome and they were finally free. They rested for about 10 days and then they began traveling all around Europe, talking about how the Communist Party and the Romanian government were persecuting Christians and uh, about the underground church and about his years in prison just as they expected him to. And uh, then they eventually ended up in the United States. And he testified before Congress about the persecuted church. And they asked him, do you have any scars? And he took his shirt off for everyone to see. And he showed him all of his scars. And he said this, I don't boast of these scars. I show the tortured body of my church and country. I speak for heroes and saints who cannot speak for themselves, who died under torture for their religion. He wrote his first book, it's called Tortured for Christ. It became a bestseller almost overnight in multiple languages, and it brought about the establishment of 19 different ministries that helps the persecuted church, that brings them literature, radio broadcasts, and prayer, and support for the families that are left behind when their loved ones are taken. They also began the Voice of the Martyrs. This is what um, Sabina and Richard did. They began... BOM, as it's called now, in 1967. And even today, they serve the worldwide persecuted church in 40 different countries. BOM made a movie of the Tortured for Christ book. It's an excellent movie. It was made in 2018. You can watch it by going to BOM or um, Amazon Prime. And many of the images you saw were from this movie. One of BOM's most critical functions, though, is to get the Bible or other printed Christian materials in the hands of the people in these various countries. And so they've set up presses across the world and they love to tell the story of how they got this one press at a good price at auction. It was the press that belonged to the East German Communist Party. And they got it for a really good price and today it sits in Romania and it prints Christian materials all day long. I receive the VOM um, email about once a week and I get to read about real life people right now that are facing persecution for Christ. And I learn how to pray for them, support them, and get Bibles in their hands. Go to VOM if you want more information. Sabina also wrote her story. It's a book called The Pastor's Wife. And it is currently out of print, but you could get it today if you want to get it on Kindle for four bucks. But VOM is in the process of reprinting it, and they say it will be about in the next month or so. So you can get it from them. <laughs> Most of what I shared was her story in her own words. VOM also made an excellent movie in 2021 of the early years of Sabina's ministry. And this you can find on their website or on Pure Flix. Lots of images came from this today. In our bookstore, we have two resources for you. They're both children's resources. One is the Torchlighters DVD. You saw some of that. And one is an excellent series a lot of you already know about, Christian Heroes Then and Now. There's a biography of Richard there. Now, the worm brands were often separated doing ministry. But Sabina would say, if it is dangerous to do God's work, how much more dangerous is it to leave it undone? Richard's life was threatened many times, especially when they were going to go to Munich and it was under communist rule. 
But he would say, I can't stay home. The one hired to be my killer might get saved. I can't stay home. Then the Romanian Revolution happened in December of 1989, and thousands of people gathered in this particular city square. They recited the Lord's Prayer, which was against the law. And they said, communism is dead and God is alive. And they united to fight for their freedom. And after a deadly battle with the secret police over the next few days, the nation was finally free. It was after that time that Richard and Sabina got to go back to their home country and visit. Richard, of course, was going to start preaching, right? But he also wanted to visit the place that he had been kept in solitary confinement. The only trouble was the last communist dictator, Ceausescu, had built this, the Palace of Parliament. He had basically wiped out the whole downtown area and built this huge building across the top of it. And he destroyed everything, except the basement. And so Richard was able to find his cell where he spent three years in solitary confinement. And ironically enough, the cell is a storage unit for Bibles <laughs> and Christian materials for a bookstore that is in that building today. Sabina was also able to go and see the Danube River Canal, which was redesigned and constructed and fully operational today. And here it is. The background is the Black Sea. This is that canal that she was digging out by hand. <laughs> and she got to preach. She got to go back to one of the prisons where she was and preach to a whole bunch of female inmates about forgiveness found only in Jesus Christ. Now, Richard used to say, a faith that can be destroyed by suffering is not faith. And Richard and Sabina had that strong kind of faith that even though they tried to shake it, it was impossible because they had a faith-filled fearlessness and they were looking over their shoulder like Eden and seeing their father sitting there right next to them. Now, I know that many of you that are sitting here right now just think this is so freaky. I mean, why don't you just shut up? Why don't you just go underground? I mean, why do you have to be so stubborn and so vocal about your Christianity? Well, the answer is simple. Because it's all real. It's because Jesus is real. It's because sin is real. It's because the day we all stand before the almighty God to answer for our sins and our mistakes and our acts of rebellion, that's real too. And that Jesus is the only way that we get our sins paid for. He was a real person. He was the son of God. And he satisfied the justice of God by dying on the cross for our sins. Christians are not delusional and they're not chasing unicorns. This is all real. And so real Christians, they won't shut up. They wouldn't, and frankly, we won't. And neither will the person who brought you today. She brought you here because she wanted you to hear one more time that Jesus saves from sin and that he can save you. So if you want to talk to her or your hostess, please be fearless enough to talk to them today about it because we want Jesus to come back for you too. And we want him to take you home and we don't want you to pay for your sin for all eternity. Well, the Worm Brands made Southern California their home, and they served here as long as they possibly could. Eventually, Sabina got stomach cancer and went through various treatments, and five years later, she died. And her funeral was at Rose Hills, right up the freeway in Whittier. 1,500 people came to her funeral back in 2000. She was 87 years old. 
Six months later, her husband also joined her in heaven and uh, is buried there in Rose Hills as well. This faithful couple's race was over, and today they sit with Jesus, who rewards them for their faithfulness, but also for their fearlessness. Now, Sabina liked to tell a story. She liked to tell a story of a boy who stood on the sand on a sandy beach, and he would happily wave at a ship out in the ocean until a man standing next to him said, don't be silly. That steamer will not change its course because you wave. But almost before the words were out of his mouth, that ship turned, came to shore, picked up the boy, and then went out. The boy yelled at him from the deck of the ship. He said, sir, I'm no fool. The captain is my father. (laughs) And Sabina would say, we also know that he who steers the universe on its course is our father, and he hears our prayers. And because he's our father and hears our prayers, we too can be fearless, even when really scary things happen to us. It's our prayer on the tea committee that you would be inspired by Sabina Wormbrand. And that you would remember that just like David 3,000 years ago, where God was with him and he was light, his salvation and his stronghold, he was also with Richard and Sabina 50 years back in those cells. And he can be with you too, loving you, helping you, protecting you, so that all of us can be fearless. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm thankful, first of all, that you are real, and that the God that Richard and Sabina worshiped is just as real today. I am thankful for your plan for us, that you didn't want us to have to pay for our sin for all eternity, and that you sent Jesus, your son, to come here to pay the price for us. I am thankful for the way that you have provided that, and I'm thankful for the many women here who have seen and understood that and uh, been forgiven. I do pray for those here that need to know that. I pray for them that they would be fearless, even as their heart is beating so fast right now. They would be fearless and they would ask those around them to talk to them about them. God, I thank you so much for Sabina, who was so just such a powerful story to us all, no matter who we are in this room. We know the world is getting darker and scarier out there, and we thank you for great examples like her that help us and lead the way for us to be more fearless. Thank you for our tea, and thank you for this woman in church history. In Jesus' name, amen.